Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshe Emmet Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig about this week's Torah portion of Toldot, Family Feud, The Moral Implications of Family Dysfunction. Did your parents favor you over a sibling? <laughs> My brothers would say that they favored me. Uh, I don't know if I would agree. I think that it's uh, subject to interpretation, but uh, certainly there were there were feelings, strong feelings about that in in my family, as as in most families probably. But you know, I had two brothers, so anytime you've got a group of three, there's you know there's a divide and conquer mentality going on. There's a constant um, battle of alliances. Uh, you know, who have you got on your side this week? Which which brother is the other brother leaning toward? Constant struggle, I would say. There's probably nothing more basic than the construct of a family and the family and the manner in which parents treat their children and how children interpret those. And while the Smothers Brothers, going back to the 60s, always had that great routine, you know, mom always liked you best that whole thing. There's not only truth to it, but it's also something that we have to take seriously because it can also have a really negative effect on families. Yeah, I suppose that's right. And I suppose that these childhood things um, fester and linger and that, you know, if you talk to my brothers now, all of us in our in our 50s, we would probably still <laughs> allow, admit that there's some uh, some tension over those feelings that, that, that we had as kids. Amen to that. I can I can make the same claim uh-huh. in my own family. Uh, but in the story that we're going to look at this week, you have the classic case of not only sibling rivalry, but also issues that are going to not only fester, but they're going to have an effect till this very day. You know, who carries the covenant forward? The firstborn son or the or, or Jacob, the secondborn son? So Esau and Jacob are in this struggle. And what the Torah is very clear about is that, first of all, Rebekah is given a prophecy that these twins that are causing her pain while she's carrying them are going to have a very challenging future, that the elder is going to have to succumb to the younger, and that the inheritance of progeny, uh, that is the covenant, is going to go to the younger, which is a huge, huge issue, which almost was never done in that that time. The firstborn son was the inheritor, not only of the household, but basically was the patriarch. And so this was the implications of this are vast. It's also not at all clear that Rebecca ever shared this information with Isaac. We don't know that she did. We don't know that she didn't. What, what the Torah is clear about is that Isaac seems to favor Esau because he's a hunter, and Rebekah favors Jacob because he's a Yoshev Ba'ohalim. He's a tent dweller. He's a homebody, and he knows how to cook, and they have this affinity. And in this story, when they are, and the rabbis say they're around 13 years old, they're a bar mitzvah age, Esau comes in from the field. He's famished, and Jacob is cooking a meal and uh, some sort of pottage. And Esau, he's starving. Give me something to eat. What Jacob says is, well, okay, but you'll have to get give me something for this. I want you to sell me your birthright. <laughs> just, just, for a, just for a pot of stew, huh? Just for a pot of stew. Yeah. First of all, it's astounding that he would say that. And we'll go circle back to that in a minute. Yeah. But that Esau would say, okay. What, you know, he says, I'm going to die. What good is this birthright going to do for me if I die? Now, he's hungry. But 
I don't think he was on his deathbed, right. right? I don't think he was exactly starving to death. So he's impetuous, right? But he's also, he's a kid and they make the deal. So what do we do with this story? What do you do with the story? Well, the first thing I would say is this is a whole lot of family dysfunction. You know, you've got a husband and wife who aren't speaking on the same terms, you know, mother and father who are favoring one child over another. This is like, you know, reality show stuff. And then two stupid teenagers who are you know, trading their birthrights because they're hungry. <laughs> I guess, you know, those of us with teenagers can relate to the power of a hungry child and how, uh, you know, irrational they can be. But uh, nevertheless, you know, we have a lot of dysfunction going on here. So I'm not sure that, that any decisions that are made in these conditions should be, you know, binding and that we should be talking about them thousands of years later as if there's logic to them. Well, yes and no. I mean, the reality is, is that I'll speak for my family. There were all kinds of irrational things that happened, right? All kinds of terrible fights over the most ridiculous things. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like the most important thing in that moment. So, this is this isn't just a story about one dysfunctional family. I think all of us can relate to cer certain elements of this. Now, the way the story is told, I think we can all kind of feel a little bit better about our own families compared to the family of Isaac and Rebecca on some level. But you know, circling back to Jacob and Esau, there are some really glaring issues here. First and foremost is that the notion of hachnasot rachim the the way that we welcome a stranger into our home, the way we share food, that was the hallmark of Abraham and Sarah, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And when Rebecca is chosen to be Isaac's wife, as we learned in last week's portion, she's chosen because of her kindness. She's chosen because the servant asked for water. And the test was not only would she give him water from the well, but also offer to water his flocks. In other words, how giving are they? And so this is the hallmark of the clan of Abraham. And we celebrate this idea. And here, Jacob is doing the exact opposite. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll give you something, but what are you going to give me for it? Mm -hmm. So it's horrible. It's horrible. Now, how do we deal with that? Where's the boundary here? Is there no moral compass at work here? Well, clearly not. Um, or you know, it, the moral compass seems to be pointing towards selfishness for all parties, right? That's one of the problems with a moral compass. The gravitational pull is always toward yourself. You are the sun around which the earth revolves. If you think about it that way, then there's no such thing as a, an objective moral compass. You're always going to be biased toward your own interests. And that's just human nature, right? Yes. But let's play this out a little bit. Let's call Jacob in. I'll be Jacob. And I'm going to say to you, well, Mr. Eig, this is all very interesting, but I want to tell you something. I understood at a very young age, because my mother told me the importance of this covenant, and I knew that my brother would be terrible. And not only that, but my mother had this vision from God that she was carrying with her. I knew this was supposed to be for me. So this was really a test. If Esau would have said, how dare you think that I would sell my birthright for this bowl of pottage? What is wrong with you? Then I suppose I would have had to accept that. But he didn't. You see, he was really not fit for this. Now, who's right? I at least exposed him as the cad that he was. Yeah, right. And <laughs> So go ahead. So what do you say to Jacob? 
I say, well, maybe Esau felt like you guys had decided against him all along that, his, you know, his mother had never treated him like the true birthright. And sure, you want the birthright? Take it because you guys have already been treating me like I'm a second class citizen my whole life. So, yeah, my birthright isn't worth a bowl of soup. So go ahead. Take take your stupid birthright. You know, he may have felt like this was inevitable and that he had nothing that had no value anyway, because it was never treated legitimately. Okay, so the family construct was kind of weighted against him from day one. Right, it's not worth a bowl of soup to him. So therefore, we can never really judge uh, or even question Esau. We have to see him as a perpetual victim. Is that what you're trying to say? Maybe. Well, certainly that's how he may have felt. That's how he may have felt. But doesn't a person actually have to take responsibility somewhere along the line? Are we always able to point to our father or mother? at the age of 50 or 60 or 30 or 40 or 20 and say, you know what, I'm the, I am the way I am because of X, Y, or Z. And therefore I can't help myself. And that's just the way it is. Or are we also at some point in our lives called upon to A, acknowledge what our past was and say, I don't want that past to be part of my present or future. So I'm going to do the work that it takes and no one's suggesting this is easy. I'm going to set my own path. I'm going in a different direction. Isn't that also a possibility? I mean, don't people do that all the time? Absolutely. But but I would say, just to continue arguing with you, because I'm enjoying this at the moment, um, he's 13. And we are all subject to the biases that are baked into us, right? And if he's been feeling all his life as if his mother treats him like the second son, the black sheep in the family, that she's never really considered him the son who was given the birthright. And and he's got this inferiority complex, this anger. These biases, these prejudices that get baked into us, no matter how wrong they are, are very difficult to shed. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to shed them, but it's not always easy. No, I, I think we all know that. It isn't easy, but at the same time, we're, we're given one life. So what do we do with it? Now, the reality is, is that the Torah is actually much more sympathetic to Esau than the rabbis will be later in time. The rabbis are going to really have a field day with Esau because they're very invested in seeing Jacob as being the good one, Right. The Torah is actually much more honest about this, and I think reflects kind of real life. But the bottom line is, is that decisions we make do carry forward. And unfortunately, he made that decision. Now, what's going to happen later in the portion is going to expose Jacob as being almost, if not immoral, clearly amoral. In this story, what, what happens is the story continues. The story is, is that Isaac's old. He's also blind, and he knows he's at the end of his life. And he sends Esau out to hunt venison and to make a meal such as he likes. And he's then going to give him his birth blessing. So there's a birthright, but the parent also has to give the firstborn a blessing. There's two parts to this. That's what concretizes the birthright, is this birth blessing. Esau's out in the field. Rebecca hears this going on. She's now nervous. Maybe she could have said in that moment, look, God, you want this to happen? You got to say something now. It's not just up to me. You gave me this revelation, so you step in. God may have stopped him, just like God stopped Abraham from killing Isaac. God is capable of jumping into these situations, but that she doesn't do that. She takes matters into her own hands. She says she dresses Jacob up as 
Esau, puts his clothes on, actually covers his hands with fur. If Isaac feels his hands, remember he's blind, that he'll, he'll know who he is. He'll smell him. He'll touch him. But Jacob at no point says, Mom, what are you doing? I'm not doing this. This is my brother. What, this is my father. I'm not, he doesn't do any of those things. Right. What he's worried about is, well, I don't want to be judged. So she says, I'll take the sit on my head. That's what he, he's out for himself. Mm-hmm. So he goes in and his father says, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So Jacob lies directly to his father. He says, no, I'm Esau. So we see Jacob's character or lack thereof. And we see how it is that people could get this idea in their head that what they're doing is for the greater good, and I'll break every moral rule. But what we're watching is the destruction of a family. And then you watch Isaac blesses him, and Esau comes with the food, and he says to his father, his father says, I gave the blessing already. And Esau says, Father, don't you have a blessing for me? Whose heart would that not break? And so here you have this family breaking down, but the issue that was seen in the the sale of the birthright develops into this kind of moral calamity. And I think we have to take that with us as well. And as much as we could just point the finger at Jacob, we also have to point the finger at Isaac and Rebecca as parents who didn't do more. Yeah, it's a really powerful story. And, you know, we talk about that moral compass, no matter how strongly you feel you're on the right side and that you're acting um, for the right reasons. And there have been examples of many great people and many evil people who have broken the law because they said the law was wrong and that morality was was above the law. Certain morals, certain beliefs were above the law and that the law would have to change. And it really just depends on which side you're on. And, and those are really dangerous and they can cause good and bad. Well, they can. But at the end of the day, we have to have a moral compass. We have to have laws that we can agree on that are for the common good, for the greater good. And there have to be rules in a family that are for the greater good. Right. It can't just be a free for all that exists in our society. And we have to do as much as we can to live within those rules or else we'll have utter moral chaos. And I think that's the story that we deal with on this day where Jacob will never see his parents again and he won't see Esau for 20 more years. We'll see Jacob go through a process of change and evolution and we'll see him transform himself. And we'll also see, spoiler alert, he will make his way back to Esau in a very interesting way. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi.